Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. Roisin, what's on your mind today? Do you know who's on my mind? Oh. It's a 90-year-old woman that I've never met called Bunny. So, just a little story. I got this um, anonymous, well, except for that had Bunny on it, a little beautifully written note. Um, I do a thing every Friday in the Irish Times where I have a little corner of the paper and I ask people what's making them happy. And it's a really nice thing that I put out on Twitter, but people can email too to happy at irishtimes.com. And people just say the things that are giving them joy or making them smile. And sometimes on a Monday, you know, the Mondays aren't the best uh, day of the week. And I can often feel a bit, oh, whatever. But then I hear all these lovely things that are happening to people. And they're very simple things. Like I went for a walk on the South Wall or, you know, had a dog and he had some surgery and now he's much better. Or, you know, things to do with children or just life things that are happening. People getting married. And they just cheer you up. It's really interesting, the effect, even though it's not your happiness or your nice things, that the fact that people are sharing these things, it's all very good for your mental health, I think. Anyway, I love doing it. It's called happy. It's called a hashtag Irish Times happy, if you ever see it. Hashtag Irish Times happy. Yeah, and it's every Monday I usually put it out there. Anyway, uh, so this little note came in and it said, at 90 years of age, what makes me happy is whizzing away on my new sewing machine and listening to the lovely smooth sound and seeing perfectly with my new glasses. And it was just signed Bunny. And I was really just, I was very moved by it, Cathy, I have to say. I don't know why. I just found it really, the thought of this 90-year-old woman on her sewing machine with her new glasses, just being really happy, made me very happy. So I put it on Twitter. And uh, I've been asking people if you know Bunny or... And it's really interesting the effect it's had. People are wanting to channel the spirit of Bunny and it's like Bunny is a state of mind more than an actual person. And it's just that joy of crafting. And I know you're going to be talking about crafting to Anna Carey today. So I just thought it would be an appropriate story to tell you about. I am. And one of the points I realise about sewing, which I don't do, but I am inspired by Anna to do, Mm. uh, is that you can still be doing it at 90 with your new glasses, which is a very precious thing to have. So I'm going to take up sewing, Roisin. Well, I'm, and I, I want to hear thank all about Bonnie it. and Anna for this. But the thing is, I, I think we've all had like, I think in the same way that maths can can really be at school if you're not good at maths and you can just grow up thinking that's not for me, I can't do it. I think the same thing happens with stuff like sewing and knitting because I'll never forget being in first class and Miss Thompson. I can see her now with her black bob and her red lipstick looking at me and she told me to stand up and hold up the knitted hairband that I'd made. And I'm such an idiot. This is like, this has happened to me a few times in my life where I've been singled out for things and I've actually thought I was being singled out in a good way and then it turns out I'm being... So she told me to stand up and show this headband. I said, and that is what you don't do, what Roisin Inkle has done there. And there was I realised then looking at it, there was a, you know, I'd missed loads of stitches, there was a hole in it or something. I'd been quite proud of myself up to that point and then I was held up as a kind of example of a disaster and I remember just going oh this is something I can't do and I would love to be a crafty person and I'm sure there's some part of me that would be good at it but it kind of killed off 
that thing in me. So here's to Bonnie. I actually talk about this to Anna because it is it is it is, it is a real thing, and actually it would be very interesting if people are responding to this to tell us about their experiences because I'd say a lot of people were put off by that kind of teacher response. Okay, well back I definitely think you need to get into sewing and maybe bring us in some examples of your oh, well. work. Well, Anna, who's a journalist and author, told me that she felt a greater sense of achievement when she finished sewing a 1920s-style dressing gown than when she finished writing most of her six novels. So that's really saying something. She came into studio to talk to me about two books she read recently about craft work, Threads of Life by Claire Hunter and Craftfulness by Rosemary Davidson and Arzu Tazin. These books talk about the emotional benefits of craft work and about the history of it as a legitimate art form, which is a fantastic combination when you think about it. I really learned a lot from talking to Anna and I think our listeners will find themselves rooting out those old pattern books and sewing boxes after this one. Needlework to me, has always been a sign of repressed womanhood. You know, those costume dramas where the exasperated young women sitting there stabbing at a piece of linen or whatever it is they sew things into. And yet, what you're going to tell us about today are these two books which suggest absolutely the opposite. And it's all very moving and many, many angles that I would never have thought of before. So tell us about these two books, first of all. Well, the books we're talking about today are... uh Craftfulness, Mend Yourself by Making Things, that's its sort of subtitle, by Rosemary Davidson and Arzu Tassin. And it's about using craft of all kinds as a a way of boosting mental health. And the other book is Threads of Life by Claire Hunter. And it's basically a, a, a social history of sewing and how needlework has been used as you know, a way of political protest, as a way of subversion, as a way of documenting, you know, threatened cultures and, and personal histories um, and as uh, and as art, you know, pretty much everything, that, pretty much the opposite of the repressed Regency lady, well, you know, this, compulsively this is, this stitching a sampler. Thing. So, yes, yeah, so let's start with that. Um, the, 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 the whole business of mindfulness, neuroscience, positive psychology, this, this reward thing yeah. that you get from, from, from crafts. Well, a friend of mine who, like me, really likes knitting once uh, said that the good thing about knitting was that it's like meditating, but then you get a jumper at the end of it. <laughs> so, uh, and thank you to my friend Kate for coming up with that, because I think that sums it up. I mean, when you do something with your hands that you're focused on, you're mindful by default because you have to give it a certain amount of attention. You're focusing on what is happening right now. And it is very calming. And it also gives you something to do with your hands, with, you know, all sorts of traditions around the world have used just doing something, doing regular movements with your hands, like putting, you know, touching beads or or knitting or crocheting or doing something like Tai Chi as a way of helping focus Focus the mind, so it and th- fits and this in is with based the tradition. On, on 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 pretty sound evidence. I mean, for example, Annie, you were saying that Claire Hunter, for example, has worked with patients in a psychiatric hospital. Yeah, well, it's occup- you know occupational therapy um, is is a real thing, but a lot of the the roots of it come from you know the nineteenth century. When and and especially the early twentieth century, when it was found that for people who you know were mentally ill or who had um, who had undergone you know a great trauma, 
doing something like needlework uh, gave them both a creative outlet and a way to focus and a way to express themselves uh, that wasn't necessarily verbal if they weren't able to, if they, you know, either physically or emotionally weren't, weren't able to speak. Um, and one of the most moving sections of Claire Hunter's book is when she talks about disabled servicemen after World War One and how this basically cottage industry developed that was able to, to give them... Um, both a way of, you know, a creative outlet and something to do when they were confined to their homes, you know, people who had formerly been working out in the world. And there's a report from the time that talks about how the the former, you know, the people who had done the most heavy labour beforehand, like bricklayers and, you know, plumbers and builders, they were the ones who, who proved to be incredibly skilled in this really delicate work. And they got something out of it because they, they created something from scratch. And that provides an enormous mental boost you know, something didn't exist, then you get some needle and thread or you get some yarn and needles uh, or crochet hook or whatever and then something exists and you have made it and that's an incredibly satisfying thing emotionally. Uh, tell us a bit more, Anna, about how how these crafts have been used to get messages out, to, to send signals out to a wider community or to people in otherwise delicate circumstances. I mean, Mary Queen of Scots, for example, used embroidery to get out messages. Yeah, this is absolutely fascinating. I didn't know this until I read um, Claire Hunter's book. But, you know, she was forbidden to to write uncensored and she would create these embroidered panels that, uh, you know, some of them had symbols of her Catholic faith. Uh, this is when she was imprisoned. I mean, she was imprisoned in a nobleman's house at the beginning, but um, she was still, you know, she was a prisoner. And she she did, my favourite one is when she did of a big ginger cat representing her uh, cousin down south, uh, pursuing, looking very goggly about the eyes and pursuing a little mouse uh, who obviously represents her. So she was able to create this sort of, you know, she couldn't write down her subversive thoughts, but she could embroider them. And she did. Um, and uh, and then women who were imprisoned in Japanese prisoner of war camps, um, they, in a couple of camps, created these quilts. They managed to to get the fabric and needles. And in, in one camp, they were actually, they were officially allowed to do it. In other places, they kind of smuggled stuff in and, and did it in secret. But they created these quilts that were sent to the men in the men's camp. And they wrote their name, they embroidered their names on them and symbols, you know, that would mean something to them personally. And it was just this, this way of saying, I'm alive, I'm still here. And there were, you know, countless examples of people doing stuff like that using this supposedly harmless means of uh, of you know women's occupation to, to send out a message and the mothers that disappeared in in, in the 1970s Argentina um, Anna uh, for whom protest was such an emotional had such yep. an emotional um, base to it they were out protesting about the disappearance of their of their their grown children basically yeah and it, I, I mean it's it's always it's been used used pretty much everywhere you know Palestinian refugees have have used it to sort of document you know communities that each had their own embroidery threads they um, or embroidery stitches and patterns they lost their communities when they were you know when they became refugees and then they came together and created a sort of a new collective style um, and they were able to, you know, they could sell these 
these items through NGOs, which is something that a lot of these marginalised groups around the, the world have done to kind of bring attention to their plights, just like women in Chile and Argentina and, you know, and back, going right back to the suffragettes who, who made these banners, as, you know, banners on display as well. Tell us about uh, Margaret MacDonald, Anna, and the Glasgow Girls. Well, she is, um, I mean, she's she's very, she's best known for being mar- now, I think, in the wider, to the wider world, uh, for being the wife of Charles Rennie McIntosh. She was an amazing architect. I mean, famously designed the Royal Glasgow School of Art that's now burned down twice, one of the most beautiful buildings I've ever seen. Um, but she was an artist in her own right, and she was part of a movement that used uh, textiles to create art, you know, embroidered panels and uh, and and various other, you know, fabric images of various kinds. And a lot of that art, uh, you know, there was the Royal School of Needlework was established to encourage textile art and it does still exist today. But there, there has traditionally been a kind of dismissal of that kind of art. It's not seen as as serious as... as other sorts of art because it is linked to women's work and therefore it can't really be seen as as proper art. It's just a craft. I mean, which is you know how these things are dismissed. And is is that is that being remedied, Anna? Is it, are, are we moving beyond that now? I think we are. I mean, I think there's more of um, there's more of an awareness that textile art and needlework is real art. You know, it is taken seriously. I mean, you see somebody like Tracy Emin, who, I mean, she doesn't always get taken seriously by the general public, but a lot of her stuff uses um, uses uses needlework. I mean, she sews things and properly, you know, and that is, uh, that at least has been acknowledged by the wider art community. Um, and somebody like Grayson Perry, I mean, he's not, in, it doesn't do needlework, but he has sort of blurred the boundaries of art and craft um, so I'd like to think that it's being taken seriously. I don't think necessarily retrospectively it's taken as seriously as it could be. I don't think people are really looking as they should at like 19th century Patrick quilts and thinking that's abstract art. That's abstract art, you know, 100 years before artists of the 20th century are um, breaking bound, supposedly breaking boundaries. I don't think that those sort of things get the credit that is due as, you know, incredibly innovative art because textile art is often abstract and it's almost always the work, and it always, you know, it has been for millennia. I mean, there's references in Claire Hunter's book to books that um, embroidered shrouds and things that are like 2,000 years old. Um, So people have been, women have been making this stuff for a very long time and I don't think it's, that history really gets taken as seriously as it should be. Mm. Now, getting back to the books, Threads of Life is a is a, is a, is, a, is a fascinating social history. Yeah, which I find fascinating in spite of myself. I mean, I began <laughs> by being sort of thinking, "God, do I have to see this?" Um, but it is actually fascinating and very moving. Yeah, uh, in parts it really is because it shows how people have play you know used this creative outlet to in in a very emotional way. I mean, she writes about people mourning the dead by making. Um, by by making embroidered you know tributes, um, she herself created. She's from Scotland, and she created a sort of embroidered panel that's a, a, a that was a tribute to the victims of the Dunblane massacre, the children who were who were murdered in 1996. Um, 
and her next door neighbour was the chaplain who was taken to the hospital when the when the children were were brought in, um, which is very moving to read about. And she talks about like the AIDS quilts and other um, memorials to the dead that have people have used, you know, creative skills to to make those things, and also the way that it has brought hope to the people who are hurt and damaged, and they've managed to find, you know, they've managed to to leave their mark and the mark of their communities by sewing um, in often people who have absolutely no way, other way of expressing themselves who can't read or can't write, but they can sew. It's such an interesting thought because it certainly beats taking to drink, doesn't well, it? Exactly. You might, you might you be doing otherwise. You could just take a needle and thread. Yes. Now, threads, so that's threads of life. Now, craftfulness. Yes. Uh, Anna, is more of a practical guide, it I is, gather. Yes. yes. So it's more encouraging the reader to, uh, using, you know, some scientific data and then personal anecdotes, um, encouraging people to embrace any sort of creative pursuit. And they don't give, you know, the, it's it's not limiting itself to needlework. It's everything from book binding to uh, pottery to, to sewing and and knitting. Um, but it's it's just a reminder that anybody could can benefit from this. Like you don't, it doesn't have to be perfect which they think is sometimes the thing that puts people off. Yes. And it puts me off sometimes. Like I've got some fabric I bought in Liberty um, in London a few years ago. Very expensive. I couldn't even buy very much of it um, to make like a sort of sweatshirt top. And I haven't made it yet because I'm too scared to cut into it in case I make a mistake. And I should just make it. Maybe well, it'll be a bit wonky. Well, it's not the I end of the world. I also know that you finished a 1920s style dressing gown called a Buchanan, <laughs> yes. which, I, which I went to the bother of Googling, oh, actually. Did you? And it's quite a complicated looking garment. There are different, lots of different pieces it's to be. It's got panels, yes, yes, and lapels and such like. Um, yeah, and when I did make it, and it did take a while because I kept just doing, oh, I can't, I'll just hem this bit of it. Oh, I can't bear to put in that sleeve now. I'll leave it for another three months or something. I mean, it really did take ages because I would do a bit and then leave it for a long time. But when I finally finished it, uh, I, not joking, I felt a greater sense of accomplishment than I did when I finished writing books. Like You're making that up. No, I'm genuinely not because you make something and suddenly it's there and you can wear it. And a book, when you finish writing it, it's, you know, in your computer and it takes ages until you actually see it. So it's a, a very long process. But you make something, make a dressing gown, you put in, finish that last seam and, you know, press it because you do always need to have an iron next to the, near the sewing machine. And uh, then you're wearing it um, and it's and it fits. And that is an astonishing thing. And I think for me, because I find sewing harder than knitting, because knitting, it's easier to undo mistakes. Yeah. Whereas sewing, if you cut it wrong, it's, you know, you can make a giant times of it. Um, I don't know whether you've seen The Great British Sewing Bee, which I'm very happy is back on BBC Two this week. No, but I'll make a point of watching it now. Well, it is very exciting. It's very entertaining and exciting, but it's basically like the bake-off, except they're, they have to make clothes. And they make terrible mistakes. But in a way, it's liberating to watch them because you realise, OK, yeah, that happens even to them. And they're so, really good. Anna, supposing I stumble across a sewing machine in my mm. house. Now, I don't want to get this down to really grubby basics <laughs> because I, I, I grew up at a time in, in primary school when I think sewing was part of the curriculum. And the teachers... It was for me as well, like in the 80s. It? Yeah, they were about to make an apron. Well, I don't know about you, but the teacher actually said, Kathleen Sheridan, you are a taffy at sewing. <gasps> and yes... 
And I never, because my calico, little piece of calico, was always dirty Aww. and it was grubby. And I never seemed to be able to make the same lovely stitches as a girl beside me, who's now not going to mention it. I was extremely <laughs> jealous of her. Um, so I actually, that honestly was enough for me just to think I am yeah. a taffy at sewing and I'm not going to bother now. Um, do you have to have a kind of a talent before you start trying to make the Buchanan? I don't. I think it depends on the pattern. I think the good thing about the, the modern age is that it's easier to find. I wanted to try sewing years ago because my mother used to sew. I mean, she sort of stopped after she had four kids and a full-time teaching <laughs> job. But like, she made her own wedding dress. She made really nice things. Oh, that's my, serious stuff. Yeah. And my yeah. great aunt made incredible stuff. Um, when you know when she was my great aunt used to buy Vogue in the you know thirties and just copy things, make her own versions of them. People used to come up to her in the street and ask her where she got clothes. So uh, she was properly good. Um, uh, but now it is easy to find very basic patterns and really good books and YouTube tutorials, and you know you can make something quite simple uh, with which doesn't demand as many tiny pieces. You can make things that basically have, you know, four pieces. And that's a lot easier than trying to make something with, you know, lots of tiny little panels and yes, pockets and like collars. Yeah, well, I mean, even the Buchanan didn't have buttons. Like, <laughs> I've never made any, I've never sewn anything with buttons. I made a dress with a zip once, but it was a very wonky. So, um, See, that all sounds very serious to me. In order to inspire oneself, should we start by reading these books? Or do we just go and buy a How to Sew book, Anna? Where would you start? Um, there's some really good How to Sew book. There's actually a woman called um, called Tilly, um, well, I think her surname is pronounced Valdez. It's, it's spelled W-A-L-N-E-S. But um, she has a website called Tilly and the Buttons. And she has produced two really, really good books about sewing, quite basic sewing uh, books and I mean uh, I would recommend both of them one of them is just an introduction to sewing one is sewing stretch fabrics like t-shirt fabrics and trying making something like say a pair of pyjama bottoms which is literally just uh, two pieces usually or four pieces um, and you, they're very easy to make just need some cotton and some elastic and that's basically it but I think knitting if you're tempted to give anything a go knitting is probably easier because you need less equipment like a sewing machine is expensive so if you don't have one already you know it's a few hundred quid to get a decent one um, whereas knitting you can buy a pair of needles and some wool for you know not that much money just to set yourself off and then later on you can go into the organic uh, beautifully you know hand, hand dyed combinations but I think it is very, it is more accessible than people might think. Now, you came in wearing this lovely shruggy cowl thing, as you called it, which actually isn't the big knitted thing that I sort of have a fear of. It's actually very fine. And you made this yourself. I did make it myself, but there's an amazing site called Ravelry, which I really recommend to anybody looking for uh, knitting inspiration or who thinks, "Mm, maybe I'll get back into it again or for the first time. Um... Because it's basically you can look up um, a pattern by, say, you want to make a jumper. You can look up by easiness, you know, see and you can see other people's versions of it. You can see how many people have made it, what ratings they gave it. Did they think it was too complicated? You can look up, you know, find something that is for exactly your level and then usually download the pattern either. You know, sometimes you have to, but most of the time you have to pay for the pattern because it's, artists selling their work but the patterns would be like a fiver you know cheaper than a whole book 
And if you are confused by anything, there's a lot of good YouTube videos. So, I mean, I started knitting out. I learned as a kid and then the late 90s, it was kind of the feminist knitting revival among uh, sort of indie feminists, sort of punk rock DIY feminism kind of embraced knitting. And that's when I started knitting again. And, there, you know, it was pre-YouTube, obviously. And sometimes I would get very confused by a pattern. I wouldn't understand it. Um, whereas now, if you're like, what does that sort of cast off mean? You can go on the internet and find out in like a second. OK, Anna. So do you think that if I were to sort of stumble across my sewing machine again, which I've never used, but if I were to find it, uh, could I make a pair of curtains? Yes, Actually, you definitely could because my sister made a pair of curtains having not sewn for a while and they're some of the easiest things to make. Now, you have okay. to have to line them and stuff, but oh. I, I think you could do it. Just make one that goes straight over like a curtain rail, not one with holes or fancy attachments or, okay. or anything. All right. So getting back to the books, <laughs> so, so who would read these books, Anna? I mean, do you recommend that people buy them and who would read them? I especially recommend Threads of Life and I think anybody could read them whether you're interested in craft or not because it's essentially a sort of social history with loads of really interesting stories that it's really, you know, uh, evocatively written and she's a textile artist as well as a writer. So she draws from her own life as well as other people's. Like she was involved in making banners in the miners' strike in the 80s and she she talks about that. Which is a fascinating yeah. detail actually. Yes. Yeah, in itself. And she's been involved in a few political campaigns. She was at Greenham Common as well um, for a few visits. And it's just a really, really interesting book and I think it would interest anybody. And craftfulness, I think, for somebody who is, you know, maybe somebody who is anxious or is looking for something to help their mental health, I think it could inspire them to take up all sorts of crafts. And it doesn't have to be a textile related one. They could go to a pottery class or, you know, okay. start start drawing or car- take up whittling or, car- you know, carpentry. It's it's more about the general sense of making something. Yes. And it's 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 the mindfulness aspect of it, the, the almost effortless mindfulness mm. aspect of it that I think is so appealing. Never mind me and my curtains. Um, although I am going to have a go at that sometime soon. Uh, I think that effortless mindfulness is 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 such an interesting thing yeah. for you to draw attention to, Anna. So we have two books, Threads of Life, A History of the World Through the Eye of a Needle by Claire Hunter and Craftfulness, Mend Yourself by Making Things by Rosemary Davidson and Arzu Chazin. Anna Carey, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. In your lovely shruggy cowl. And I look forward to hearing about the curtains. Fabulous dungarees. Thank you. <laughs> we discussed the curtains some other time. <laughs> and that's it for today. Thanks to Anna Carey for speaking to me today. I'm sure you're all off to dust off your sewing machines after that. I'm going to give those curtains a stab. <laughs> Literally, maybe. Stay tuned for progress reports on that. You can stream or download the Women's Podcast on Apple Podcast, Spotify and all good podcast apps. And remember, we are fond of praise, so feel free to subscribe and write a review while you're at it. If you want to get in touch with us directly, we are on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. The Women's Podcast is produced by Roisin Engel and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. I'm Cathy Sheridan and until next time, thanks for listening. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.